yet in education, we we value tradition, which of course is important, but the innovations that we found in other parts of our life just haven't made it to education. And sadly, the teachers are often the last to be the ones to be innovative. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. My guest today has been the Chief Executive Officer and President of Bay State College since August 2018. Mark DeFusco has a career spanning over 30 years in higher education management and has been an investor, an innovator, and an entrepreneur. With a BA from Villanova University and a PhD from USC, he currently serves on the boards of several education companies and nonprofit organizations. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mark. Thanks for having me, Jeannie. It's good to talk to you again. Well, listen, first I want to start off with what Bay State College is and what it does that makes it a truly unique college. Well, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting in many ways. Um, well, first of all, Jeannie, it, it, it was designed many years ago when, when the airline industry was first getting started. And initially it, it was founded simply to start training folks in an industry that just didn't have folks to work in. And so Bay State got its, got its roots training maintenance, re- maintenance workers and folks who worked in the airline industry. Over time, uh, Bay State has, has really been uh, strictly related to folks getting careers. And so when you take a look at the American higher education environment, there's really a crazy amount of different numbers and different kinds of institutions, but most of which are are generic, most of it which are, are all teaching the same kinds of things. So outside the top, say, 300 uh, really fine research institutions, most of the institutions are, are teaching the same things. We focus specifically on educating folks for, for work and making certain that they can go out and, and work as a consequence of coming to college. And that's changed so much, obviously, since, as you said, since the beginning when you started. Um, give us some ideas about some of, the, some of the things and the skills that folks are gaining from attending Bay State, which I have to make sure everybody understands Bay State is Massachusetts. Bay State College is in Boston, Massachusetts. We're in Boston. And, and you know, within 100 miles of us, we have 103 um, institutions, some of the finest in the world. So, you know, uh, eight of the top 50 colleges are within walking distance of my campus. But but we train folks in, in the healthcare industry. So we train nurses and physical therapists. We train folks in in business and IT. And we also train them in kind of specific, specific jobs. So we're very, very strong in entertainment management. So most of our, our uh, most of the, the concerts that you go to throughout the summer are housed and, and worked with with many of our graduates. We have a fashion a fashion program that that uh, supports a very, very strong fashion industry here in New England. So again, our folks are, are coming here with, a, with an idea that they're going to get a job as soon as they graduate. And they are mostly adults who have to also uh, keep, keep a job while they're going to school, right? Isn't that interesting, Jeannie? Because again, the, the kind of the, the terminology that we use 
really is antiquated. We most we often thought about coeds as kind of 18 to 22, and and so we call non-traditional students non-traditional because they're older than the 22. But the truth of the matter is, last year there were more more um, students who were over. 25 years old, and there were 18 to 22 years old. So I think we probably have to, we have to come up with a new nomenclature and how we call folks. But no, we we kind of split half and half. Half of our students come directly from from um, from high school, and the other half are working adults trying to trying to get the credentials to move forward in their careers. It is really interesting. We've talked about this a lot before with guests on this show, the changing uh, landscape of higher education. You know, my kids all assumed, as many out there did, that when uh, that mo- that like 90% of kids were graduating from high school going right into college, a four-year college, not some other kind of post-secondary education. And yet the amount and the diversity of post-secondary in this globe, let alone this country, uh, is enormously diverse, right? It's, it's, it really is remarkable, Jeannie. And, and, and even the folks that are coming directly from high school we're finding are working incredible numbers of hours. In fact, what we found is that the, the, the vast majority of students in traditional colleges and universities are working be, between 20 and 30 hours a week. So it makes it very difficult for, for a, a student to Move forward in, in their in their education. I know I couldn't have done it when I went to school. I was fortunate enough to not have to to go to work and, and study at the same time. So there's an incredible diversity, and I think that's what makes American education so strong. You know, we've we've been hearing a lot uh, lately. Of course, given the progression of this tragic virus in so many ways that is affecting, obviously, lives, and our hearts go out to them, and affecting livelihood and affecting the way um, people can go about their daily business, and particularly when it comes to schools. uh, It's a challenge for policymakers uh, at the lower levels of, of education. And I was thinking about you in preparing for this, that one of the benefits of being online to a certain extent or having many of your courses available online is that you don't have to really grapple with whether somebody may not be able to come to campus. You know, it's it's a very very interesting subject especially now that we're we, we have to deal with, you know, on on Friday the University of Washington canceled their classes for the rest of the semester. Saturday Stanford uh, canceled their classes till summertime. Uh, Columbia just closed closed to uh, this morning, but for us, it really doesn't make a difference. All of our all of our classes have the technology in it that we use our online technology both on on ground and online. So, for our students, should we have to close, uh, they won't they won't really notice much of a difference, largely because we plan our curriculum around technology. So, how does that work? So, do students both have to show up or can show up on campus and be with their professor? Like, what's the balance of remote to on-ground? Well, you know, it, it, I, I've, been, I've been accused of, of, of being a skeptic, but, you know, we haven't really changed the way that, that uh, our students learn for nearly 500 years. <laughs> uh, and, and so here at Bay State, we flip our classrooms because we think that the most effective use of our of our faculty is in giving feedback and not just standing in front of the class and lecturing. That seems like the, the worst possible use of their time. And so in essence, what our students do is they get the lecture 
prior to coming to class, and then the interaction in the class is is you know filled with knowledge largely because they've done that hard work before they came to class rather than afterwards. And so, in our flipped classrooms, the students get small vignettes, then they get they get a, a problem to solve in the, in consequence, and then our faculty can judge the quality of their learning based on how well they how they how well they respond to their challenge. And so when you say they get their lecture, it's not like in the old days when we would get assigned the reading and then those of us who would do the reading, maybe not always, <laughs> would then show up and assume you understood it, right? Are they getting this uh, on a video? That's correct. So that our, our faculty will give a short, a short vignette, either by video or, or in writing, but most of the time they'll have a reading assignment, they'll have a short vignette which explains the concept, and then they'll have a specific problem to solve as a consequence of that so that we can have evidence that not only do they understand, but they can, they can use that information. And so the faculty then comments on, on the student's ability to, to respond to the information rather than they just learn it, oh rather gosh. than just you know, re repeat it by rote. Had I had that for so many of my courses, I may not have been rereading the same chapter over and over and over again trying to figure out what the heck they were talking about. <laughs> uh, talk it's the about truth. Advances. And you know, when we think about the technology, we have technology now to watch eyes. And so hopefully down the line, our hope is that we can see what information are, is difficult for our students to grasp, largely by the amount of time that they they have to spend interacting with that, and that then describes the, the the places where we have to reconstruct our curriculum because we want to make certain that the folks that the folks that are having problems find a better way of of finding ways to learn. Do you? keep in touch with people at your alma maters, you went to Villanova University, you got your PhD from USC, and are those institutions similarly advancing? So you are in a, a very unique, innovative kind of college. Are the others catching up? You know, sadly, no. And, and, and part of that has to do with the nature that, that it's a different kind of institution than, than, than here. You know, in many cases, Colleges are also social institutions, and, and they signal. And so that when someone goes to a fine institution like USC or Villanova, they're also oftentimes trying to, to purchase a signal to employers that, A, that you're educated, B, that you're able to think your way through things, and, and C, that you've put together a, a good background that will allow you to solve problems in new and different ways. So I think they're looking at their their product very differently than we are. Our product, what we what we assume is our product, is that a student at the end can pass their licensing board, that they know enough to go and and become relatively quickly useful to their employer. And so we get that feedback because our clientele's really looking for different kinds of signals. Much more immediately. You bet. So we judge we judge our curriculum. You know, my my nurses pass pass their licensing board greater than 90% on the first try. So we want to make certain that our outcome measures get the students what they came here for. Well, we, we pulled out this great quote that was on your website, a student saying, what I love most about Bay State was that most of my professors had some kind of industry experience outside of teaching. Fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, the, the old George Bernard Shaw quote that those who can do and those who can't teach, I don't know if we're that cynical, but we, we understand that as, as the world changes and moves quickly, that you can really get out of 
out of step with what's happening in the in the outside world if you're, all you're doing is focusing on your research in on one small narrow area. So we demand that our practitioner faculty have an understanding of how things are working and um, because those are our stakeholders. Imagine if that was the attitude in K-12 where in order to teach history, you had to have actually studied history. Or, you know, I can just imagine maybe someone who's been a writer teaching writing. Um, talk about opening up. We talk about teacher shortages and lack of respect to the profession. But imagine the wealth of people who we could bring in to schools if we use that same guiding principle. And you know what, Jeannie, the interesting thing is that our practitioner faculty love being here because they get challenged by our students. They they keep their ideas fresh. And so it's really a two-way street that not only do the students benefit, but also the faculty. So they're, the faculty are getting challenged and, and getting asked really good, solid questions from from our students who are really interested in what they do every day. Yeah, I mean, I know there's a million people who have examples like this, I'm sure, out there, but I just remember uh, my uncle, who is truly a mad scientist and worked for years at Bell Labs, uh, you know, retired and wanted to teach in New Jersey public schools, and they wouldn't let him teach. And he could have taught science uh, and made experts out of anyone. And I just remember, what a shame that we're not availing ourselves of that wisdom. Well, you know, Jeannie, the, the the professions have always have always found a way to slow things down. And so, when you think of of, of teaching as a profession, as a, as opposed to an avocation, as a, as a love to to impart knowledge, I think that you hold things back. But uh, you know, we are all aware of the Rand report, where where the teachers just didn't score very well in colleges, and and so then we have a we we start to wonder why. Why um, things are not <laughs> are not going better in the classroom? You know, years ago we had a really a, a strange a strange advantage because if you were a woman and and you wanted to be a professional, you really didn't have a whole lot of choices. You could have been a nurse or you could be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so we had we had the finest minds in America all showed up in in classrooms, and so we had really great great classrooms. That's just not the case anymore when. Thank God we we've progressed and, and people can run the center for for education <laughs> reform. But you know, so you can have other jobs. But we've lost lots of that talent, which we were very we just had such strength in that talent because the finest minds in the world were all in our classrooms. Yeah, and you think about you know the baby boomers and people aging out of uh, all sorts of different occupations. By the way, thank God there's a place for me to run because I would have probably not been very good in the classroom. Um, <laughs> So let's transition to one of our other favorite topics besides innovation in education at all levels, uh, uh-huh. Bella Italia, the beautiful country go. of Italy that uh, you were so kind and generous in the earliest part of our planning, the U.S. Italia Education Innovation Festival in Ercolano at the end of April. Um, why was that something that was of interest to you? Well, you know, I, I think most of us don't remember, but the first universities all came out of Italy. And so when we think about about kind of how we started to to really pursue knowledge, the roots of it all started in Bologna. And so, you know, just to go back to our roots, Jeannie, and find the, the, the great knowledge of the world and how we start to build universities there really are important. You know, American universities really took 
<laughs> took its cues from from the great European university. So it's, it'll be wonderful to get back and to, and to start to help folks think about investing in education um, in Europe as well. You know, you talk about a rapid response, a typically slow-going country uh, where everything is methodical, including eating. Um, Put out, you know, Italy jumped to put out, as we learned last week from one of our guests, uh, Enrico Poli, they put out an RFP almost immediately upon realizing they had to close down schools to, you know, education technology companies asking them to help uh, address this deficiency in remote learning that's not ubiquitous and should be ubiquitous. I was so impressed by that, Mark. I thought, you know, we it takes us a long time. New Jersey, on the other hand, uh, passed legislation to consider how the state might go about remote teaching. Meanwhile, the entire country said, yeah, send us your best and, and we'll figure out how to implement that. I mean, that's extraordinary if you think about it. Well, and, and, and when you think about it, Jeannie, that there's always been remote learning, right? There's been kids who've been sick. There's been kids who've had problems in the classroom who just can't get along with other kids. So we've always had remote learning. The question is, how do we, how do, we do it better and, and more efficiently to help everybody learn? And what do we do to make sure that when uh, things like this hit us, right, that we are prepared for, you know, all kinds of life? I mean, you know, many of us have worked, you know, virtually when we needed to or when we want to or um, we're kind of on 24-7. I think a lot of people are also questioning how they continue to work if they're not um, at a desk or in a brick-and-mortar environment. Is that something you guys have struggled with thinking about there? Well, you know what? You know what, Jeannie, I think this is what I'm going to talk about when we get to Italy, is just think about the rest of the world and how much flexibility and convenience it gives us as opposed to how we teach people, right? I mean, ultimately, if the only way that I could book a, a plane ticket was to go to a travel agent, if it hasn't, if it had, <laughs> the world hadn't changed like it's changed, just think how different our life would be. And yet, in education, we, we value tradition, which of course is important, but the innovations that we found in other parts of our life just haven't made it to education. And sadly, the teachers are often the last to be the ones to be innovative because they knew how they learned, and they're not so, they're not so keen on trying new things. Well, I'll tell you what, if nothing else has put education uh, at the top of the national list of priorities and issues, this has. I mean, we've, you know, we, we push and prod to get uh, our leaders to constantly have this top of mind, but uh, it shouldn't take, as we said when Katrina hit, it shouldn't take a hurricane, it shouldn't take an earthquake, it certainly shouldn't take the coronavirus for us to start thinking about uh, how to transition and transform how students learn, because we're all so different anyway. Some of us can sit for lengths of time and have absolutely no problem hearing and listening and uh, being among 30, 50, or 100 people in a lecture hall. Others have to walk and um, and really have solo time to be able to have uh, great thoughts and and make progress. Um, and then there's, of course, you know, a thousand million things in between. Mm-hmm. Well, and think think about it. I mean, if if education, if Stanford Stanford on Saturday said, you know, what we think that online online education is going to be just fine to complete this semester, why is it good enough for Stanford and not good enough for the rest of the country? And, and talk to me, you've got some experience with what people have been doing in China. What, what 
what can we learn from that country? I know everyone's really mad at China now, but mm-hmm. because of what's going on, lots of reasons. But mm-hmm. when it comes to education, they've been ahead of us, haven't they? Well, you know, interestingly, interesting, Jean, the uh, they've been out actually slower than us in, in education. Mm-hmm. I, my shareholder, the, share, the the largest shareholder of 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 our company is is a Chinese firm but for instance the online education is not valid in in China they don't they don't quite trust that yet and I'm hoping oh, that we can we can we can help educate them and when you think about it for a population for a population that's nearly a billion and a half people they have about 2000 institutions of higher education to contrast that, Jeannie, here in the United States with a population of a little bit more than 300,000 people, we have nearly 6,000 institutions of higher education. So they're trying to, ca- they're trying to play catch-up, and while their fine institutions, their top-notch institutions are doing quite well, they still haven't caught up with the, with the rest of the, the infrastructure. Interesting. So tell me how you got into this. How I got into, into higher education or how I got into Bay State. Um, yeah, just higher education, just where you are today. Like what, you know, if, if, if there's someone out there thinking to themselves, gosh, I want to be him someday, what was uh, the trajectory? Was this planned? Were you I, it, thinking I one wish, day I you'd be I wish I could say it was planned, Jeannie. I, uh, you know what? It's, it's actually really, it was really good fortune. I was, uh, I was working at, at USC, but I was working in the, in the business school at the Center for, the Center for um, Crisis Management, and I was a, a young married guy, and and being at the Center for Crisis Management, I was I was on the road far too often to to be a young married guy, and so um, I was threatened that my marriage <laughs> wouldn't continue if I did. So I took I took a job just by accident with um, with the Apollo Group, the the folks who owned the University of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they were trying to find an established academic, and I I was smart enough to realize that if I took a risk, I would my traditional academic career might not be the same, but I took a risk with with the Apollo Group, and they took a risk with me, and that was in 1994. And you you know what happened with Apollo? At least in the beginning, it grew like crazy. We started out with. 12,000 students, and when I left, there was nearly 450,000 students. At the University of Phoenix, right? At the University of Phoenix. And so John Sperling, the founder, really was an innovator, and he, he, in essence, invented that industry. And he invented an industry where where we could find a person where they where they were and teach them where they were as opposed to having them have to come to us. And so that was a wonderful time. And I grew with the university, and and then uh, because of the success of the university, I had lots of opportunities. So I worked, I worked at a private equity-backed group that got had, was acquired, and they asked me to grow to grow a firm that 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 we had bought, and that was fun. And we we grew a, we grew a vocational school, and then I went and worked at Berkeley Noise uh, uh, on Wall Street because at the time I had done more transactions, I'd bought more transactions than. Just about any banker on the street. So it, it's been a very, very fortunate. It's been a very, very fortunate life, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, it's interesting because education gene accounts for the second largest portion of our economy, only after healthcare. 
and yet we don't have the kinds of scale that we see in other industries. So I've been fortunate to to start to start to scale an industry that never had scale. It's a great lesson for people, um, particularly uh, adult, young adults who have not quite figured out where they're going, um, that you're not necessarily always sure. Uh, and taking substantial positions will always, I think, raise and elevate uh, you in someone else's mind. And um, it's a really extraordinary story. Okay. Well, you know what, Jeannie? I think the interesting part is that we always think about education as local, and that's why I'm so happy that we have you at the center, because education is much broader than local and yet when we think of it, it we mostly be thinking about 15,000 school districts when i think uh, hopefully young people start to think about it in a broader sense in a larger larger marketplace that is so true okay last question uh putting you on the spot here as an italian in boston uh, uh favorite restaurant recommendation in little italy in in little italy my my! All right, does it have to be in the North End, or no. can it be anywhere in the city? Anywhere in the city, okay. If, well, I'll give you two. If it's if if you want to go to Little Italy and get the whole the whole feeling, then you have to go to Mama Maria's. It's been around. It's kind of like the red leather, you know, what you think about from Billy Joel's Billy Joel's song. <laughs> uh, but but there's a brand new restaurant here in the here in the Back Bay with my friend Chef Chef Doug Williams called Mita. M I D I, and uh, oh my God, he's just a genius. And uh, so, if if you get to Boston, get to Mita. And Monday nights is like all you can eat pasta, so you, it'll make you crazy. Oh, I, sh- I love that. Okay, I will definitely take that of note as well. And then hopefully we will be dining together as well as collaborating about transforming education uh, when we get to Ercolano, Italy. Uh, and hopefully, uh, God willing, we will be there at the end of April without much delay, and if not, uh, soon after. But I so appreciate your signing up to be part of that and being such a great friend of a higher education innovation and such a leader in our country and, of course, uh, a friend of ours and a guest here on Reality Check. Well, thanks for having me, Jeannie, and we will have a chance to, to celebrate you in in, uh, in Italy. I, I appreciate your leadership. It's you know we get very possessive with our education. I'm really I'm really happy that we have folks that that challenge the status quo, and I'm I'm glad to I'm glad to be on your show. Thanks so much, Mark. Stay tuned next week for another edition of Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. My guest has been Mark Defusco, CEO and President of Bay State College. Ciao. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.